And we are continuing and concluding our series on hope called Hope for Everyone. And again, I want to just say congratulations that you survived the Christmas holiday. How many of you, show of hands, traveled in the last week or so? You went and saw us? Okay, so just, just a handful. Okay, now we know that when you're traveling, okay, so even if you didn't travel this week, you know what I'm about to say is true. When you're traveling, there aren't a lot of options for what to eat, or where to eat lunch when you're on the road, right? Usually it's uh, who can prepare food on demand within 60 seconds so I can get back on the highway quicker and get where I really want to be. So it really limits the options. So how many of you had fast food in the last week? Just so everybody knows, if you're watching or listening on podcast, there were more than double the people ate fast food, then traveled last week. Okay, so you, you guys are eating fast food, not just when you travel, but often. Okay, now we just get everybody to raise their hands. How many people know that they eat too much fast food? And in 2019, you are resolving to eat healthier and to live better and go to the gym. And um, let's see, that'll last... Mm, I don't even know if we're going to make it to next Sunday, okay? That might be irrelevant, but we're still a couple days away from the new year. So dream on, people. Keep dreaming. I don't really believe in you, but that's okay. Um, now, I want to talk about fast food for just a little bit because um, I like to get you involved in my messages that way by giving you some useless facts that maybe will help you win who wants to be a millionaire or Jeopardy someday. And so um, I wanted to start off with a little bit of a guessing game. Does anyone want to shout out what the largest fast food chain is in the United States? McDonald's, McDonald's. Okay. Well, I actually looked this up for you. It won't be a mystery. Uh, number five is Pizza Hut with 7,500 locations. I was surprised that the fourth biggest fast food chain is dun, 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 Dunkin' Donuts with 12,500 locations. But it makes sense when you think about who their competition is, which is Starbucks. And Starbucks is the third with 13,900. So Dunkin' has a little bit of ways to go, but they're definitely closing the gap. Ah, this one's going to surprise you all, though. McDonald's is only the second largest. Oh, my goodness. Only the second largest with only 14,000 stores. Number one, Subway. Wow. With a whopping almost 26,000 locations in the United States. 26,000. Just so if you're not good at math, I want you to just understand that you take all of the Starbucks, all of the McDonald's, and that's just a thousand more than there are Starbucks or uh, Subways, okay? So there are almost one Subway for every McDonald's and Starbucks in the United States. Subway. And that surprised me a little bit. Did it surprise you? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just like one of those things where you see it so often you stop seeing it because they're everywhere. Um, if I got a flyer in the mail about a new Subway opening, I probably wouldn't care. A new KFC, I probably wouldn't care. It's not like we need more places serving up fast food, oil, and grease. I think we've got enough of that. Okay, maybe just one more. I would really like a Panda Express in Madison. Don't know why we don't have one yet, but I would like it. So I'm making a public plea right now. Um, now, if that surprised you, let me. I want to try to surprise you again. Um, there's another franchise in the United States that's even larger than Subway, and with 330,000 locations in the United States is the church. 330. 
thousand plus churches in the United States of America. Of course, that number will fluctuate depending on who you cite and what year they did their research, but roughly 330,000 is universally accepted for uh, the amount of churches that we have, which is also astounding to me. I was like, wow, that 330,000. Um, and then I started to think fast food and churches and all of these amounts, and, and essentially everything distributes something. I mean, that's why we meet, is because we got to distribute something. You're giving away something. So uh, you think about all of these fast food places, they distribute fast food and cheap coffee. And then not to be corny or cliche this morning, but the church also distributes something, and it should be hope. We should be distributors of hope. Um, now we've been talking about this hope for the entire month of December series, Hope for Everyone, and while we've been talking about the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus, and we've been talking about how this hope helps us deal with disappointment, this hope helps us face our fears, this hope helps us find unexpected purpose, and today we're going to talk about how this hope should be something that we distribute to our cities, to our communities, and to our church, which honestly is really exciting for me. Now, I get it. I'm the church planner in the room. So what did I do? I went off and I started a church because I was like, we got to get this message out. We got to do this. And so I get excited, but I want you to be excited too, because I don't know what your nine to five is. And maybe you're one of those lucky people that like, you've got your dream job. You're doing what you want to do and you love it. And that's awesome. But I would imagine that there's at least half of you who are like, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not super passionate about where I'm clocking in tomorrow. And, uh, and I'm sorry. And that's okay. And the thing about God's mission is that it gives your life significant and immense value outside of where you work, outside of your relationships, outside of your bank accounts. And it is really exciting. It gives us purpose beyond our own life. But there's a problem. Okay, so there's 330,000 churches, and we should be distribution centers of hope. But statistics would also tell us, and I know this, you got, I love all these statistics, okay? Um, 80% of these churches, 80% are stagnant or dying. So of the 330,000 churches, over a quarter million of them are either doing this year to year or they're doing this year to year, but they're not growing. I actually had read about a church in Atlanta. This is great. You're not even going to believe this. It's true. Google it when I'm done. I'm not going to give the name of the church up because I don't want to do that to them. But um, there's this church in Atlanta, and what they decided they were going to do like an outreach or a community event, and they were going to serve some fried chicken, and they were going to make this fried chicken. And so they did. They made this fried chicken, and a bunch of people showed up, and it was great. And then what do you do in the church world when a bunch of people show up? You're like, oh, we got to do this again, obviously. And so what did they do? Well, a little bit later, they made some fried chicken. Now, what ended up happening is they kept doing the fried chicken thing, and people kept showing up. As a matter of fact, so many people showed up that uh, there were more people coming to fried chicken night than Sunday morning. So then they had to start charging for the chicken because like, it was going to put them out. So then they started charging for the chicken. And then at some point, it just didn't make sense to do church anymore. And they became a fried chicken restaurant. I'm not making this up. You can Google it. It is real. True story. No more church just fried chicken. And I got to be honest with you, if I can be honest with you, um, I want to try some of that chicken because I don't, that's got to be some pretty good chicken if we shut a church down. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, I feel bad, but I'm like, I got to try some of that chicken. It's got to be pretty good. Now, this church is one extreme example of what I want to talk about today, which is what happens when the church and the people of the church lose their sight on the vision, lose sight of the mission, and lose sight of the purpose. What did this church in Atlanta do? That what started off as a good community outreach event, all of a sudden they got lost the vision, lost the mission, lost the purpose, and then it became all about fried chicken. And then the church shuts down, and we have a new 
chicken restaurant. Um, again, not many churches are going to become fried f- food places, um, but you've probably been a part of a church that was not a distribution center for hope. And I would guess that some of you have heard of or read about or even have experienced churches that were distribution centers for pain, distribution centers for anger, and distribution centers of judgment instead of hope. And again, this is what happens when the church, and I'm not talking about an organization led by a pastor, I'm talking about God's people take their eyes off the mission and the vision and the purpose. And so we're talking about hope. And my prayer is that this church, that Madison church, that you and me, that we are a community that believes that there is hope for everybody because we know that you don't have to go very far to find a church or faith community, and this isn't to slam anybody, but to find a church community that believes that hope is for a select few chosen individuals, but certainly not for everybody. Find a church that believes that hope is for everyone who agrees with our doctrinal statement on the website. You can check them out. We've got 16 of them, and you can sign up here. And if you can agree with them, then you are in, okay? Uh, We believe that there might be hope for white, middle-class Americans. Did I hit a nerve? Maybe a little bit, okay? Now, stay with me this morning, because there can't be hope for everyone if people are getting left out. Hope is either exclusive or inclusive. It either excludes somebody or it includes everybody. Do you, does that make sense? So we've been talking about hope for everyone. And unfortunately, I think it happens way too often in the modern world that it's like, it's hope for me and it's hope for my family. And that's about where it starts. And that's also where it ends. And that is a path that leads us to fried chicken churches, the churches that distribute anger and pain and suffering instead of God's hope and love and forgiveness and grace. And I know sometimes we talk about the Bible and we think, oh my gosh, this book is thousands of years old, written in the Middle East, the ancient Middle East, written by um, primarily Jews. What could it possibly say to me um, in 2018? And I'm glad that's the question you're asking because uh, even thousands and thousands of years ago, they were having the same exact problem with the hope just coming in and never, ever uh, going anywhere. And there were people all over the world living, and they were kind of following idols or worshiping false gods or doing this or doing that, and their lives were just completely emptied. And God doesn't just sit around and say, oh, well, gee, that's uh, too bad. God says, no, I've got a plan. I've got a mission. I'm going to reach out to these people. And he does so uh, first through a man named Abram. And and God says to Abram, leave your native country. You're going to leave. Take your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt, and all the families on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, All the families on earth will be blessed through you. And then the NIV has it this way. I like this. I will bless those who bless you, or whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples, all peoples, not great grammar, but it works, right? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. How many people? All peoples. What people? All peoples. Okay, stay with me here, okay? That's going to be a theme the rest of the message today. It is incorrect grammar, but you get the point. All of them, every one of them. God effectively told Abram, there is hope for everyone in the world. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter who they are because God's love is for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, or where you're from. God's love is for you also today, which is great. And Abram got right behind that. 
And so did Abram's kids and his grandkids. And for the most part, they stayed on track with this. But what happens is generation after generation and hundreds of years go by, and eventually Abraham's descendants, uh, they get a little stingy, they get a little greedy, they get a little selfish, and they turn into hoarders of God's love rather than carriers of God's love. And I want to put it this way, God's hope no longer moved through them. In their mind, God's hope was only available to them. I think we fall into the same trap where we get God's hope is to me, but it doesn't move through me. And then you fast forward a few thousand years to this Christmas story that we've been talking about an awful lot. We talked about Jesus and Mary and Joseph and Zechariah. And today I want to talk about the wise men and the shepherds in the story, which oftentimes we just kind of read past real quick or it looks real cute on a nativity scene. Because a nativity scene with just Mary, Joseph, and a baby, hmm, but a nativity scene with some wise men and some shepherds, and you throw some goats in there. Now, that's something you can put above the fireplace, right? Okay, but I actually want to talk about those guys because their purpose is greater than what we put on the mantle. And so I want to read from Matthew chapter 2 today. Now, Matthew writes a biography of Jesus' life, and you got to know this about Matthew because it's very important. Matthew himself is a Jew. So when he writes, he's writing through the context of somebody who grew up in a Jewish family, went to all the religious ceremonies, did all of those things, and then Jesus comes, and so Matthew has that lens. And so starting with verse 1, Matthew writes, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. Okay, so there's where the wise men come in. Uh, some of your translations might say magi, and that's okay. It's the same word. Okay, we're going to use that interchangeably. But um, we don't really, I mean, yeah, okay, they're in the story, but who cares? Um, I'm going to cite a scholar here real quick because he explains it better than I could. Okay, so scholar R.T. France says, Magi in Persia, that's these wise men, played an important role in advising the king but were more widely known as learned men who specialized in astrology and the interpretation of dreams, and in some cases, the magical arts. Magi were found all over the Roman world, but were specifically associated with Babylonia. And that is the most likely meaning of the term the East when written from the point of view of Palestine. Who were these wise men? Okay, I'm glad you're asking. They wrote horoscopes. Okay, that's what they did, astrology. They were political advisors. They worked for the king. They did some like tarot card, tarot card readings, you know, fortune telling, because they could do the future and interpret dreams. And they dabbled in a little black magic from here or there. Okay, so that is what we're talking about when we're talking about the wise men. These were people that if you were Jewish in the first century, you did not associate with. And can I be honest? Some of you would not associate with those people today, okay? They're kind of like your weird second cousin, twice removed, that you don't hope that they don't show up for Christmas, and they did. And they got to show you this new thing, or you got to read this, and you won't believe this. And have you tried this new essential oil? They're pushing that stuff now, right? Okay, so that's what I'm saying. That's who these people were, which is what makes it so interesting that Matthew goes out of his way. He says, oh, Jesus was born. By the way, there are these wise men who were into all of this weird stuff. They were the first people to come and see the Messiah. France continues. He says, it is remarkable to find that Matthew introducing them into the story without any signs of what? Disapproval. To have the king of the Jews recognized and honored first, not by his own people, but by representatives of the many 
who were later to come from the east and the west to take their place in the kingdom of heaven, appropriately set the scene for the ministry of the Israelite Messiah, who would both be rejected by his own people and send out his, nation, uh, send out his disciples to all nations. Matthew may well have included this story to bring out the truth that, what? Jesus is Lord to all peoples. How many peoples? All peoples. Come on, you guys. I know you want to say it. What peoples? All peoples. From the very beginning of Jesus' life, we are reminded that there is hope for everybody, not just the same people who look like you or think like you, but even the people who are way weird and out on the fringes and get into some really weird stuff. Jesus met them where they were at, and they came and they worshiped this king, and they were first before the Jewish people were. Yes, hope has to come to us, but we have to allow it to flow through us. And I think that sometimes we let hope come to us and we stop it. We don't let hope flow through us. We are just like those Jewish people in the first century. We're waiting for the Messiah. We want the Messiah to do good things in our lives, but just for me. It's kind of a selfish place to be. And because of that, we have friends and families and neighbors and coworkers, and along with the rest of the watching world, they've lost hope in Jesus not because of Jesus, but because of the church, because of you and me. And I know that's a lot. That feels heavy. And I'm not trying to get after you this morning, but that's the reality. There are a lot of people who are into Jesus or interested in Jesus, but because of the church, because of his people, they're like, eh, I think I'll figure it out later or some other time. And that has to change. Now, if we look over to Luke's telling of the birth of Jesus. Luke is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And in the Bible, Gentile means everyone who's not a Jew. So most of you can relate uh, to Luke. And here's how he tells the story. He says that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. Come on, there it is again, all people. How many people? All people. What people? All people. In Matthew, we read about wise men from the East because in his Jewish context, that was really out there on the fringes. And in Luke, as a Gentile, he's saying the shepherds are out on the fringes. Again, uh, another scholar here, Leon Morris, he says, As a class, shepherds had a bad reputation. The nature of their calling kept them from observing the ceremonial law, which meant so much to religious people. They were considered unreliable, and hear this, were not allowed to give testimony in the law courts because they came from a despised class. It didn't matter if a shepherd was the only person who saw a murder on the street. You couldn't trust them. Why? Because they were a shepherd. And Luke is saying, yeah, 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 there were wise men there, sure. Matthew already talked about that. But I want to talk to you about the shepherds who came and saw Jesus. Because as a Gentile, I'm used to being on the outside of this Jewish religion and being on the outside looking in. But it's not just Gentiles like me, Luke, who's a doctor, doing pretty well for himself. He says it's the lowest of the Gentiles. It's the people who are furthest on the fringes. They got to see Jesus too. So the king comes, our savior is born, and the very first people who are there to greet him and welcome him and worship him are the people who believe in some awful weird stuff and some people who can't even testify in court because they're so despised in their society. God told Abraham, Abraham, 
He says, many generations before the first Christmas, I am going to bless you. And through your descendants, through them, I'm going to bless the entire world. It is through you. I'm going to bring hope for everyone. It is not to you that I will bring your family hope. It is through you I will bring hope to the world. And that's why we need this message this morning. And that's why I'm glad you're here. Hope for everyone. We have to bring that hope for everyone. It's not just for us to learn how to deal with our disappointment. It's not just for us to learn how to face our fears. It's not just for us to find unexpected purpose. But what about my friends and my family and my coworkers, my enemies and my allies? And far too many of us are like those Israelites. And far too many of us are like the people going to these other 300 thousand churches, where if God wants to do a work in my life, great. But that's where it starts, and that's where it stops. Hope to me, not hope for everyone. We need to let hope flow through us, not just to us. Imagine what it would look like if every church, all 330,000 of them in the United States, got passionate about this mission Imagine if the church said, if we're going to do anything, we're going to be known as distributors for hope and grace and love and forgiveness rather than this or that or what color is the carpet or what type of music do we play or who can take communion or not. None of those questions. But if we focused on those things, the most essential things, what would happen? And again, it's not an organizational choice. It's not like we can say as Madison Church, we're going to put it on the website that we're going to be a distributor of hope. And then, well, I hope that the people follow suit. It's a choice that every single one of us makes as an individual, and you take the sum of that, and that's our community. So everyone is important. You're either bringing the average up or you're bringing it down, and I hope that we're all trying to bring it up, okay? Now, we as the church are carriers of God's hope, and that's a credible opportunity uh, for us. It really is. I want to finish today how we started it a little bit. Uh, A Google search would tell me that in Madison... There are 10 Pizza Hut locations, three Dunkin' Donuts, nine Starbucks, a dozen places to get McDonald's, and only 28 Subways. (laughs) Okay? How many churches? You might be wondering. There are 195 churches that show up on Google when you search. Um, That means there's 20 churches for every McDonald's or Starbucks in Madison. That might surprise you a little bit. But remember that 80% of stagnant, or dying churches. That means there are roughly 30 churches in Madison that are growing in some way, shape, form, or another. And there are less than eight, or roughly eight, that are either multiplying or reproducing. What does that mean? More services or more sites. Madison Church is one of them. Now, I know you might look around on a normal Sunday morning and say, well, there's not hundreds of people here. There's not thousands of people here, but I'm here to tell you right now that statistically, we are in the 1% of churches in Madison. Madison didn't need church, Madison church number 195. They did not, but they absolutely positively need our church. Not a website, not a building, not another service, not black chairs with our stage and lights, not fogs, lasers, pews, organs. They need our people. They need you. You are a distributor of the hope. Don't stop it. When God's hope comes in you, let it flow through you. Who do you know? And I believe in the power of God's spirit. So I believe that when I ask the question, who do you know who needs God's hope, that a name just popped into your head. 
that a face popped into your heart, that a spiritual conviction is happening right now to every single one of you. And if it's not, wake up. God is speaking to every single one of us right now, and it's not about growing this church to have a full gym, but it's about reaching people with that hope and that grace and the love and the forgiveness and the new life and the total life and the fresh life that we get only through Jesus. What if that's what we resolved to do in 2019? Instead of eating better, working out more, doing this, doing that, what if we said in 2019, I want to distribute hope better? In 2019, I want to love people better. In 2019, I want to forgive some people I haven't forgiven in a long time. In 2019, I'm going to exercise grace like I've never exercised it before. What if those were the things we resolved to do in 2019? What would our conversations look like next December as we're preparing for 2020? If over the next 12 months we said we're going to be more full of grace and forgiveness and love and hope. Hope is for everyone. It's inclusive. It includes everyone. It excludes no one. Not shepherds, not wise men, not you, not me, not Republican, not Democrat, not someone who lives in the city, not someone who lives out there, wherever that is. God's hope is for all people. How many people? All people. What people? All people. Hope is for everyone. And that is how we are ending this series.